everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Miriam Krinsky from Fair and Just Prosecution. Welcome back to our show. Thank you and appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about these important issues. So just as a starter for those who don't know, what is Fair and Just Prosecution? So we are a network that has the privilege of working with what I believe are some of the most inspiring leaders in the country trying to change the field of prosecution. We work with individuals who have come into office seeking to use the clout, the all-important and all impactful clout of the role of elected prosecutors to bring about change in the criminal legal system and to rethink decades of an autopilot that too often has assumed that we can punish our way out of the everyday challenges that people face or out of substance use issues or mental health challenges that individuals are struggling with. And leaders who instead are trying to look at where can we be smarter, where can we be data-driven, where can we try to bring compassion and racial justice and equity into the jobs that elected prosecutors do. And we try to help support them in that work to enable them to be smarter about it, to bring them together so that they can take a lonely job and, um, and be in the company of colleagues who are thinking about these issues in different ways. And also we try to expose them to some of the best thinking in the country and even outside our borders and bring their voices together around issues of common concern, whether it's in joint statements or amicus briefs or other ways that they can think together. How do we create a new normal in the field of prosecution? And how do we really push back on past paradigms that have done a lot of damage and and need a rethink? And so I'm kind of curious, I mean, it's been an up and down year in the progressive prosecutor movement, for sure. Um, But how are you feeling now that the election has happened and there were a few successes at least? Yeah, so so we actually feel quite good about it. And, um, and, And really think that even before this election, I'll come back to that in a moment, that while there were, in some ways, for the first time, you know, a few isolated setbacks in this trajectory and, and this new movement that has been so exciting, um, that even before these recent elections, 
by and large, um, despite a couple of isolated setbacks that are to be expected with any process of change, that we were still seeing communities with a strong appetite and commitment to change. We, we were still seeing you know, polling showing that communities are smarter than some give them credit for, that they were not willing to embrace the fear narrative that unfortunately a few have been trying to propound um, for political reasons, that you know, communities have understood better than, again, some give them credit for, the negative consequences of presuming that we can punish our way um, out of all kinds of issues that really are not best addressed through the criminal legal system. So we saw, I think, for the last five plus years, a growing number of change agents coming into these offices and communities increasingly in red states, in blue states, in small areas, um, in urban areas, on the coasts and everywhere in between, embracing leadership that wanted to change the way we've done things for, for decades, from the time that I was a prosecutor in the 80s and 90s. And this past midterm election, really confirmed in great number the extent to which we were seeing an ongoing willingness to try to bring about new thinking. Um, we saw a large number, race after race, um, including in you know, places like Oklahoma, like um, Minnesota, uh, Tennessee, um, California, um, and, you know, and other parts of the coast, and as I said earlier, everywhere in between, um, embracing the agenda of leaders who ran on a platform of looking to see change in the legal system, looking to not criminalize things that can be better addressed elsewhere, and using limited resources in ways that really align with how we make our communities safer and healthier. So, you know, we now have come from a moment where in 2017 we assembled a table of around 14 leaders to a place now where we work with around 70 elected leaders who in total represent almost 20% of the nation's population. And you know, I think that's a huge advancement in a relatively short period of time that underscores the extent to which the field is changing and a new normal is coming into place in this field. So I'll play a little devil's advocate, um, sure. you know, um, we watched, um, especially up here in Northern California, just kind of a tough year for for progressives. Um, you know, uh, the progressive lost uh, in San Joaquin County, um, a progressive challenger for an open seat got blown out in San Sacramento County. Um, where I live in Yolo County, the progressive got blown out. And of course, the one that everybody focused on uh, was in San Francisco, where Chase Bodine got recalled. Um, so how do you kind of square that with your positive view? Yeah, I, I think I square it because, you know, there are a couple things that we need to bear in mind. Um, you know, first of all, it is never easy to um, to defeat an incumbent and more and more we are seeing a lot of money being put into trying to fuel and drive a fear narrative and, you know, money being put in, whether it's by 
police unions or others who have a vested interest in the status quo, you know, money being invested in trying to unseat some of these reform change agents. And, you know, we have unusual scenarios, and, and I think San Francisco was among those, and, and recalls are very much among those, where when voters aren't given a choice and simply have, you know, someone um, who is, provides an opportunity to vent about frustrations with the status quo with huge amounts of money, as we saw in that, um, in that recall election, being put into trying to unseat a change agent. And with, you know, the uniqueness of the San Francisco community that is not, you know, a hugely diverse community and, you know, that is a community with one of the largest, you know, shares of billionaires in the world. Um, There are unique scenarios that I think explain the results in those races. But when you cast your eye, you know, around the country, including in California, when you look at, you know, the results of Voters in Contra Costa, where Dinah Becton was reelected despite efforts um, to unseat her. When you look at Alameda County most recently, where, you know, a change agent in the form of Pamela Price was put in office. And then when you scan other parts of the country and by and large, you know, for movements that are never linear, that are never going to be without setbacks. You know, the races you identified, David, are, are really the, the small, small exception to the rule. Instead, we see huge um, uh, re-election in large numbers of these change agents. It's, you know, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia of, you know, re-election of Kim Fox in Chicago, of Kim Gardner in St. Louis, of Wes Bell in St. Louis, of Mark Dupree in Kansas City, and the list goes on and on and on. Sarah George in Vermont. I mean, a number of races where money was put into removing these change agents from office and communities are just not buying it. And, you know, again, there will never be, you know, a movement or a process of change that is solely going to be success after success. You know, as, as I think some have said, you know, even the New England Patriots will lose now and again, or pick, you know, your favorite team um, that is, you know, a shining example of success and fill in that blank. But again, by and large, this is continuing to capture the hearts and minds of those going to the polls. And I don't think there's any magic or mystery to that. I think it's because communities are just tired of what we did in the 80s and the 90s and don't want to go back there. You know, they don't want a criminal legal system that incarcerates at a rate second to none in the world. They don't want to be wasting billions of dollars on correctional facilities when there are other ways to help people and keep communities safe. They don't want to waste lives and create cycles of incarceration, incarceration and churn people through a criminal legal system that often just brings people in and pits them back out at greater, you know, instability, greater danger to the community, and, you know, does nothing to attend to either the wants and needs of those who have been harmed by criminal activity or the underlying causes of criminal behavior. So we know there are better ways to address these problems. And I think that, you know, research and best thinkers and others are modeling what that looks like, and communities are embracing that in large numbers. And I do agree with you, um, you know, on a big point, 
Um, you know, I think one of the bigger victories, and I, I think, you know, it hasn't quite gotten the recognition it perhaps deserves, is Pamela Price in Alameda County, uh, the first Black, first Black woman in Alameda, the birthplace of the Black Panthers, if you can believe that. Um, and, and she won despite all odds. Everything was against her, and she was able to come away with a victory. That, that's right. And I, you know, I think that's a significant race. Um, you know, I think the, uh, the, the resounding reelection, you know, of Dinah Becton in Contra Costa. Um, I think, you know, the decision by voters to reject a fear narrative and continue to, you know, want to see Rob Bonta as our attorney general here in California. You know, I think those are strong statements. I think the you know, the pushback on efforts to recall George Gascon, the, you know, election in the first instance of a change agent as DA in Los Angeles, who, you know, did what in many ways in California, you know, in past years was the unthinkable, namely unseating an incumbent. You know, I, I think those are the kinds of things that are compelling. I think the fact that, you know, in places like Philadelphia, when you look at communities that have been most impacted by crime, those are the communities that are most resoundingly electing and re-electing individuals who are trying to move forward a smarter way of thinking about keeping our communities safe. I think those are, are the outcomes, along with the data that shows that this works, that in my mind convinces me that this movement is here to stay, and this is creating a different starting point in prosecution, even in races where individuals are running for these offices and losing. It's forcing a conversation that never used to happen in the past. I mean, it really used to be that incumbents, once, the, once elected, held those jobs for however long they wanted to hold those jobs. And not only wouldn't they be unseated, but they wouldn't even be challenged. There wouldn't even be an opportunity for a community to engage in a probing evaluation of what is the vision of justice that we want? What do we want to see? What do we value? What do we care about? And, and how do we want to take care of each other as part of pr propounding that vision? Now those conversations are happening. People are engaging. They're voting down ballots. They're not ignoring these races. They're understanding the importance of that vote that they cast for DA. That is huge. And, and, and in a relatively short period of time, you know, from when I was a prosecutor in the 80s and 90s, that has changed in such significant ways that, you know, it, it's really, I think, something that was unthinkable, you know, 10 years ago to see the degree of that change. No, and I think you're exactly right. Uh, I remember, I think it was 2016, where the ACLU rolled out what a difference, say, mm -hmm. DA makes. And, you know, the statistic was something, I'm making this up, but 75% of all DAs run unopposed. And then uh, even among those DAs that uh, were challenged, 75% won re-election. And now you're seeing pretty much every DA getting challenged. I, I think that's right. And, and let me throw out a couple other, I, I mean, first, sort of a, a slight um, overlay on, on that. I think, you know, what we saw in the statistics at the time were, you know, 95% of incumbents were successfully reelected. 
And in over 85% of races, they weren't even challenged. I mean, they ran unopposed. Nobody was talking about who they were, the job they did, or what their community wanted. Um, you know, over 70% had been on the job for five years or more. And significantly, you know, on top of both, you know, that it, it, once elected, you know, they, they could almost just kind of coast. You know, there really wasn't a conversation about what they were doing, how they were doing it, how accountable they were to the community, how transparent they were about the decision. We also knew that as of a few years ago, only 1% of elected prosecutors were women of color. And that has dramatically changed. You know, we are seeing now not simply a group that is thinking differently and, and requiring, you know, incumbents to have um, a conversation about the job they do and what they measure and how they view success and how they transparently lift that up to their community. But they're also coming from a different demographic. I mean, we have people who never spent a day as an elected prosecutor before winning these offices. We have in growing number women and women of color, you know, as you mentioned with, with Pamela Price running for these races and, and assuming these all powerful jobs. So, you know, people are understanding more what the impact and clout of the job is and what they know and, you know, forcing that kind of probing thought. And, you know, and while we have over 2,200 elected state and local prosecutors around the country, we also know that as few as 148 of them can impact over half of our nation's jail population. So just a small, relatively small, you know, a relatively speaking number of races can make a huge difference in terms of addressing what has been our nation's past, you know, ramp up of incarceration in ways that other countries simply didn't do over these decades. Um, and to shift a little bit, um, I recently read the book that you put out. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, and, and thank you for reading it, and, and we hope that there are others listening out there that um, that will choose to want to do the same. So um, so the book that we recently put out, Change From Within, and, and if you go to the Fair and Just Prosecution website, you can see a whole page on Change From Within, um, including a page about what we call Meet the Movement, which looks at the, you know, in short videos, kind of clips of the longer interviews that formed um, the personal stories in the book. Um, so it was really our effort to try to capture this movement, to capture this unbelievably new and different time in the field of prosecution, and to be able to tell the story of what does this movement look like? Where did it start? Who are these leaders? And, and why do they do this? And I think it was particularly important to do that at a time when there are so many who are trying to vilify these individuals, um, trying to, you know, recast why they do what they do and suggest that, you know, in some way these leaders are about trying to move changes that are not in the interest of our community. You know, we really felt it was important to show what is in their heart. Why are they finding themselves on this journey? Why did they run for these offices? And, and what is that all-powerful nature of the position that they hold? So we chose, you know, at the time when this 
project started a couple of years ago, um, 13, you know, then sitting um, elected prosecutors to profile. We looked for individuals who provided some geographic diversity, some, you know, different stories about how they came to their job and really aimed through the book to be able to weave together those kinds of themes. You know, what does justice mean to them? Why did they run for office? How is this job difficult? Um, how do we sustain change? What does it look like to think about the role of the DA and bringing about, you know, within institutions that are fundamentally difficult to challenge and, and change? What does it mean to try to, you know, pivot away from that, you know, common response that we often hear when, you know, when D new DAs ask, why do we do this? You know, that common refrain of because that's how we always have done it. Now, how do we kind of think about that move away from status quo thinking? And, you know, I really think the book is just this, this lovely opportunity to get to know these leaders. The other thing that's very unusual about it is we have interwoven into the book artwork that is done by an incredible group of artists under the mentorship of Mural Arts Project. Um, that was our partner um, in Philadelphia. And these are artists who are unbelievably talented and who also, by virtue of their own experience with the criminal justice system, they're all formerly incarcerated, were able to offer that lens of proximity to the system. And so we really wanted them to capture in artwork that accompanies each of the 13 chapters, how do we think about this individual, what justice means to this individual? And I think they really add this amazing additional element and, you know, depth and nuance to the book that, you know, I hope readers will enjoy and, you know, and hopefully help inspire others to join the movement and sustain, you know, the change that these leaders are trying to bring about. And there's a lot of diversity in the group. Um, you know, I, um, back in 2019, right before the pandemic, uh, we had uh, Satana DeBerry come out to speak uh, out here in California. And at the time, she was one of the very few elected uh, progressive uh, DAs across the country. Um, so, um, and, and now now there's like a whole host of them. So it's interesting to to kind of watch the evolution there. I think that's right. And um, and that is why we often talk about the way they have created a new normal. Um, you know, I think in the beginning, they were kind of the oddity and the way they thought about these issues was the outlier. And now more and more, I think as they've increased in number and as we're seeing proof of concept, you know, we're seeing data, we're seeing research that confirms that this way of thinking about the criminal legal system it works and it is consistent and and you know commensurate with promoting safer and healthier communities so i think with all of that you know they are trying they, they are starting to convince those who some might label more traditional prosecutors and they're almost creating sort of this magnetic force that is moving the entire profession even those who may not be as far as these leaders are in terms of of embracing change, 
are still starting to think differently about you know ways that they've done things or assumptions that they've made or the autopilot of you know how we think about responding to poverty to human struggles that lead people into contact with the justice system how we embrace things like principles of harm reduction or bringing a public health lens to struggles that people are facing and violence and violence prevention so you know, I think that that critical mass is growing. I think that, you know, the way that they view the criminal legal system is starting to permeate in all parts of the country. And I think we're seeing that in the practices that more traditional prosecutors and those even below the elected level from you know bottom up to the mid-level managers to prospective DAs down the road they are starting to think very differently about some of these sorts of things. And they're starting to embrace new sets of metrics. And, and I think that's a very exciting development as well. We're seeing offices be transparent about what they measure and no longer presuming that success should be defined by volume, by how many cases they bring, by conviction rates, by sentence length, by number of death penalty sentences secured. They're really trying to look more broadly at how do we think about making our communities safer and healthier places? How do we think about fairness and racial equity and procedural justice? And those sorts of things, I believe, in the long term, are going to be creating those sorts of changes in offices that will transform these institutions. So whose story of these 13 really stands out to you? Oh, that's that's so tough. I've I've been asked that a few times, and and I say, and and I really mean this honestly, that you know, it's almost like if somebody asks you, which is who, who is your favorite child, and none of us would ever uh, want to have to be put in the position of of answering those questions. Um, I think that in different ways, all of their stories inspire me and, and are unbelievable whether it's the stories around why did they do this and what was it, what experience in their life convinced them that they had to step up and do something that is really very difficult, namely putting yourself out there and running for office. And and we saw those in the stories of Parissa Dagani Tafti, who saw someone she cared about convicted of a crime that that they didn't commit. We see it when Dan Satterberg talks about a sister of his who passed away from substance use challenges and talks about the passion he now brings and why he embraces harm reduction. Um, we see the unbelievable challenges that they face and, and people like Mark Dupree, the first elected black DA in his state who talks about meetings where as he was trying to advocate for post-conviction justice and conviction integrity processes where somebody says to him, you know, you need to stay in your place, boy. Um, we see it in the sorts of passion that someone like Satana brings when she talks about the deep challenges as a mother, um, you know, as someone who is raising Black children, as someone who sees the Black victims in her community who can also become tomorrow's individual charged with a crime, how she struggles 
with dealing with those issues around keeping her community safe, but not over-criminalizing individuals who simply need help. Um, we see the unusual ways that they approach what it means to be a member of and listen to their community, like Sarah George in Vermont, who, when she's not serving as DA by day, talks about how she would spend her evenings and weekends as a waitress um, out there, both trying to earn money to help her pay off student loans, but also being out there and listening to the community. And we see that in the unbelievable different perspective that they bring, including from years serving as civil rights lawyers like Larry Krasner did, or longtime public defenders like Chase Boudin. So I, I think all of them bring something unbelievable to the job and, and fundamentally bring that different vision for what are we trying to achieve the way Kim Fox does when she talks about her view of safety, which is no longer having empty sidewalks or empty places where people are too scared to come out and play and sit and simply enjoy their community. So, so many of them, as I think I've, I've recounted, just bring these amazing perspectives and amazing stories to doing this job and why they do this job and how tough it is to do this job. Um, and I came away from the hours we spent with each of them just that much more inspired and that much more committed to wanting to help them achieve that, you know, as the book calls it, change from within. And what's really, you know, fascinating looking at these names is how many of these people have just been under fire from the start. Some of them didn't survive. Some of them have been hanging on. Um, you know, we haven't talked uh, much about Krasner and, and the impeachment debacle. Uh, but I mean, it's just amazing what these guys have had to go through, though. It, it really is. And when you look at these leaders that we've worked with, there is not a person among them that has escaped that pushback. This is an unbelievably tough job. It is a job where you are rolling a boulder up a hill and you know the slope of that hill is steeper in some communities as opposed to others, but you are still rolling a boulder up a hill. You are working within an institution with lawyers who are not particularly good at embracing change. They have been rule followers all their life, especially prosecutors, and they are deeply committed public servants, but they're also used to doing things in a certain way. And it's just not that easy for them to shake it up and, and think about things differently. And then on top of it, you are overlaying institutional forces and often criminal legal system partners who are going to be pushing back and how much they push back and how many of them push back will differ community by community. Sometimes it'll be judges, sometimes it'll be law enforcement unions, sometimes it may be other elements of their community or, or state leaders like attorneys general or governors or state legislators. And, and then on top of all of it, some of them are unlikely individuals to hold their job. They're not simply in many instances past civil rights or public defenders, 
uh, leaders, but they have broken glass ceilings. And none of us for a minute should kid ourselves in undervaluing and underestimating the gender and racial biases that come in when they are under attack. And so all of that makes this an unbelievably challenging job and an unbelievably challenging process of change. And, um, and you're right, you know, they, they are um, facing a lot of walls of resistance, but that in part was what made us that much more committed both to working with them and supporting them and also to telling their stories. You know, people really need to know and understand what they're trying to do, why they're trying to do it, and just how unbelievably difficult it is to bring about these kinds of changes. And I guess I will plead guilty to that myself because I underestimated how resistant the system would be to change. I mean, yeah, um, you know, and, and here's the thing, you know, I've been involved in politics for 30 years. So, you know, I'm not like new at this game. I've been doing this particular job for 16 years. I've watched politics for a long time. And you just don't see this stuff in politics like this. The, the level of pushback against some of these people, I mean, Gascon wasn't even in office yet, and he was already getting pushback. It's unbelievable. It, it really is. And I've worked within other systems that have tried to bring about transformation. Um, I'm a big believer in the notion that leadership can do a lot, but I think it needs to come from the top down as well as the bottom up. You need to bring in a new generation of people who are more willing perhaps at times to embrace a different starting point because they don't know the way it's been done for years on end. But I also think that we need external forces helping to drive that change. I mean, in many ways, we often talk to them about the fact that the campaign never ends when their election is secured. In some ways, it's only beginning because those allies in the community that help them achieve that all important office they are going to be incredibly important in helping them sustain and implement the changes that they want to see. And the community has to be a partner in that. I mean, the community has a right to co-own that vision of justice and, and community safety. And the community also, in putting them into these positions, I think in some ways kind of has a responsibility to have their back when when they get challenged and when they get uh, taken on uh, by those who don't want to see this change come about. So I think these are evolving processes. They also don't happen quickly. And we often talk to them about the importance of managing expectations, of making clear to people that, yes, there are some things they can do pretty quickly, but sometimes you need to be cognizant of the importance of getting to learn your institution, of doing things right as opposed to fast and and making clear i mean we i believe one should perish the notion of a hundred days for a new elected leader you know these jobs are not about some magic of what can you or should you achieve in your first hundred days it's really about how do you bring about over the course of your tenure in that office things that 
need to be transformed and probably have been a certain way for a whole, whole lot longer than 100 days or even four years and are going to take a whole lot longer than that to fundamentally be able to transform. So I think there is value in trying to see things done, you know, without waiting forever. But I also think that we have to be patient with them and support them and recognize how challenging this is going to be. And when those status quo forces push back, you know, realize that it is going to take time. And, and let me say one last thing, David, which is having said all of that, I also think it's truly remarkable how much really has changed in the field of prosecution and within many of these large offices in a relatively short period of time. And if you had asked me around six years ago when fair and just prosecution was just starting to come into existence, what would we see six years from now? I would not have predicted the number of elected leaders that we have who have been doing things differently, the movement in the field, the extent to which we have started to see some of these changes become far more normalized, even in more traditional offices, the conversation that we're seeing in elections, the extent to which more traditional prosecutors are embracing these kinds of changes. I mean, there is so much that has happened over these five years that nearly six years um, that, you know, is truly remarkable and that I think we can feel very good about. Yeah. And I, I, I very much agree with, with that. Um, I, I just wanted to amplify one of your points uh, that you made uh, previously on the 100 days. Um, and I started chuckling because, uh, you know, for like Chase of Bodine, he's elected and 100 days in. Yes, you're right. I mean, 100 days is really um, an absurd yardstick for for change. And I you know, I think it's truly unfortunate that not just when it comes to prosecutors, but more generally with new elected officials that, you know, somehow this sort of magic concept of 100 days and what will you have accomplished with within those first 100 days, you know, that this is has become normalized um, in the political world as some kind of a, a, you know, a line of demarcation that we should be paying attention to. Um, and I, you know, I think in Chase's case, um, as I believe you were noting, I mean, he he was elected before he had even assumed office. There was already a recall effort started. And shortly after assuming office, the pandemic hit. And that has been a true, you know, kind of once in a lifetime, as we know, worldwide um, scenario. I mean, it's been a period of time where, you know, people have been isolated and they've been facing trauma and you know, and we've seen economic stresses and so much more that, of course, would cause problems in communities to be exacerbated, not because of reform policies, but because of, you know, what is to be expected uh, as these sorts of factors, coupled with a, a, a landmark proliferation of gun sales. So when you put that toxic combination together, of course, tragically, we have seen some situations where, you know, where certain kind of crimes have have risen. That is, you know, not unexpected. And it's not the consequence of elected prosecutors trying to do things smarter and more data driven. You know, it is the consequence of all of those unusual confluence of, of things coming together over these past couple of years. 
So I, w I wanted to ask you kind of more generally on, on, on your work. Uh, one of the things that I've been impressed with uh, having watched you in action for the last few years um, is the volume of letters and amicus briefs that your office helps facilitate. And how do you go about doing that? And how do you decide uh, who to reach out to? Yeah, so, you know, as with many aspects of our work, if you had asked me six years ago, what will it consist of? I wouldn't have thought that this would be part of the work that we would be doing, but um, it kind of arose organically as we started to see really important issues where elected prosecutors and others, you've probably seen often we bring law enforcement leaders and former prosecutors, and even depending on the issue, DOJ officials to the mix. It's become increasingly clear over these years that there are unbelievably important issues where bringing those voices together needs to happen and hasn't happened in the past. And in fact, with elected prosecutors, we know for a long time that they often would use their bully pulpit to try to be the stop sign on change and reform rather than using it in the ways we've tried to do. That often it would be DAs or DA, state DA associations that as there were efforts to bring about end to you know things like excessive sentences or fewer draconian penalties or efforts to reform the death penalty or to take another look at three strikes or mandatory minimums or the way we treat juveniles and young adults in the system, pick any of those issues, often when reforms would be proposed, often when reforms were proposed in the form of state legislative change, it was state associations and prosecutors that would be the ones to speak out and say, no, we want to keep things the way they've always been. And that tended to be the end of those reform efforts. So it became clear to us that it was going to be important both to put a finger on this, the other side of the scale and the need for changes and, and being smarter and the value of bringing elected prosecutors together as that voice, just as it became clear to us as the leaders we worked with were trying to move things forward in their own jurisdiction and, and facing the kind of walls of resistance that, you know, that we both, David, talked about earlier that there was a need to engage, whether in individual cases or more broadly, bring a national voice to the value of what they were doing. And, and I think of you know situations like Mark Dupree, who I mentioned earlier, who was trying to put forward a proposal to create a conviction integrity unit and faced you know voices in his community, including law enforcement leaders that said, you know, it was his job as DA to secure convictions, not to undo them. Or a similar example to that when Kim Gardner in St. Louis was trying to bring about justice on behalf of Lamar Johnson, um, an individual who, based on everything that's been shown, it has been an innocent man spending, you know, who, who remains behind bars and, and has spent around four decades plus behind bars. And her attorney general, as she tried to move forward in in addressing and remediating that injustice, her attorney general weighed in and said, no, it's too late. We can't bring about, you know, correcting of that past 
miscarriage of justice. Those were examples of situations where we really felt rather than having these leaders stand alone in rolling, as I called it earlier, that boulder up the hill, that there was benefit in being able to bring those national voices across the nation to put some wind behind those sails and, you know, and show that what they were trying to do is not just the right thing, but also consistent with the job of prosecutors as ministers of justice. So those have been the kinds of situations where we've brought voices together. Um, you know, in increasing numbers, we kind of have a, a list of elected prosecutors and former elected prosecutors and attorneys general who have been willing to stand tall on these issues. We reach out as well to law enforcement leaders and often former DOJ officials if it's an issue that is relevant for, for that kind of a constituency and sometimes even bring in former judges as well. Um, to be able to create a chorus around why these sorts of positions are ones that are appropriate and, and ones that fortify trust with our community and that by virtue of that help keep our communities safe. Because if we are eroding the rule of law, if we are further fracturing bonds of trust that have been very damaged over these past few years, we can't keep communities safe because they won't trust law enforcement, law enforcement leaders, prosecutors, judges, or others as the anchor and vehicle to help keep them safe. So, you know, that's kind of been our thinking around this work that we do that really has been growing in volume over these last few years. Yeah, and I think, you know, it really is important to create kind of this counterweight because as you know, and as I know, um, you know, the the law enforcement uh, prosecutorial alliance uh, pushing against this uh, or for the status quo is, is quite strong. And so there needs to be another voice out there to, to balance the discussion. I think that's right. And um, and you put it well in talking about sort of that counterweight um, it hasn't been there in years past. And I think the assumption has been that law enforcement or prosecutorial leaders are, um, are of one mind. And too often, you know, that one mind has been reflected by those who are resistant to try to take a second look and correct past mistakes, to, you know, resistant to efforts to think in more nuanced ways around what system of justice do we want and what are the values that it should stand for. And so as we've seen an increasing number of leaders in prosecution and also leaders in law enforcement that don't align with how some state associations or some national organizations have reflected their choices and their voice, we really felt it important to put that finger on the scale you know, on the other side, uh, on the side of those who really believe that doing this, creating a new vision, creating a vision that is looking both to right-size the criminal legal system and be smarter about how we use limited resources, be smarter about whether we're going to be criminalizing things like reproductive choice or individuals who are struggling with substance use or mental health issues or even you know, as we saw sadly in Texas, criminalizing things like parents who are trying to achieve transgender care for their children. You know, we need voices that are willing to stand up for why we don't do that 
and why, on the other hand, we need to do more to stand up for racial equity, to stand up for transparency, to stand up for accountability, including police accountability, to stand up for aligning ourselves with the rest of the world when it comes to things like rejecting a death penalty and acknowledging and coming to terms with the still too many examples we have of innocent people who have been behind bars for decades, you know, to owning things like trying to do justice when it comes to addressing and remediating past decades-long sentences that asks how long is long enough and how do we think about things like brain science and what we know about young people, all areas where we have increasing evidence of what we need to be doing, but we are now trying to fortify the voices that are willing to stand together on implementing those evidence-based approaches to our criminal legal system. Well, we are out of time, uh, but I uh, wanted to give you a chance to give people your website where, where they can follow the amazing work that you guys are doing. Well, thank you for that. Um, yes, so all one needs to do is Google Fair and Just Prosecution, but our website is fairandjustprosecution.org. Um, we would encourage folks to go there to, you know, explore um, the both the resources that are there that we hope will help enlighten how do we think about the issues that I've mentioned and also in the drop down under the movement, folks can find more information on change from within on the book that we talked about, David, as well as, you know, examples of the voices of these leaders and the stories of these leaders. Um, and folks can also sign up on our website for our newsletter and, you know, be able to get periodic updates on, on what we're doing and why we think this work is so important as it continues forward. That was Marion Krinsky from Fair and Just Prosecution. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.